Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 118th episode one box to rule them all. Well, before we get into whatever that means, I want to just remind you that in two episodes, I will be having a fly fishing accusations podcast, which is my every 10 episode opportunity to interact with emails and comments and things that are left on social media regarding casting across something I've said, something I've written, just some thoughts that you have. We've got some really good emails in the queue. In fact, there's one email that could probably take up the entire podcast, but I did want to put out a call and uh, see if anybody else had anything they wanted to share or say. I'm happy to read those. I always get back to everybody, but uh, the, the best of the best, the cream of the crop, or just those I happen to fit in that particular week, make it on the podcast. So just a reminder, you can send those to Matthew at castingacross.com. Anyway, one box to rule them all. Talking about fly boxes. Why one fly box? Well, I think I alluded to this concept a few weeks ago when I was talking about cleaning up your gear and getting you know, everything taken care of from last season and getting ready for the coming season. Generally speaking, what is in the biggest state of disarray in all of my gear is my flies. They get spread out all over the place, and what I end up having at the end of the year is kind of this pile of flies that I use the most or flies that I took a random flyer on and they ended up stuck somewhere where they shouldn't be. So this got me thinking a few years back. I have these flies that I'm always pulling off of my fly trap or out of my fly patch that I have in my car or uh, just somewhere else where I have flies stuck. Why don't I take all of those flies and load up one fly box with just those flies? They could be dries, they could be nymphs, they could be streamers, they could be big, they could be small, but let's put all of those flies in one fly box and let's see how often I deviate from that fly box. Not putting myself in some sort of, you know, 
box, I guess, for lack of a better term, not painting myself into a corner, but how often do I just use the flies that are in that one core fly box? And I have found that uh, probably 90% of the time I'm using the flies that are in that one fly box. So let's talk about that quickly, and then I'll give you a couple examples, including what is my core small stream brook trout fly box. Not that much rocket science involved there, but I just wanted to share it anyway as an example. But first, conceptually, what are we talking about? So I carry a good amount of flies with me, especially when I'm on local trout rivers. There's just some really weird stuff around me, and I want to have a good assortment of dries, nymphs, and streamers. And when it comes to streamers, there's small streamers, and there's large streamers. When it comes to dries, there's midges, and then there's full-size normal dry flies. And then when it comes to nymphs, my goodness, everything from mop flies and squirmy wormeries to traditional patterns to some really obscure things that I've tied and accumulated over the years. And I want to have them all. It's a little bit of a security blanket. You might throw in a mouse pattern, a handful of terrestrials. It's a lot of flies. And I pair them down into about maybe four or five fly boxes and some fly wallets, which are, are great for some of those bigger patterns. And I carry those in my but then, like I said, what I tried to do last year was have one core fly box. This is where I had my confidence patterns. This is where I have the patterns that I turn to most frequently. And so I had everything with me, but simply as a, as a reminder that I need to go to a more efficient and effective fly fishing and, and packing model, I carried all those flies, but then I had that one box, and I was reminded every time I went out, how I would go back to that same well over and over and over again. To be honest, I was a little scared. I'm leaving home without all these flies, and so that's why I decided to bring most of them along with me, but I had that one fly box, and then what would happen is at the end of a trip or the end of a, a week of fishing or something like that, I would take some flies that ended up on the outside of my pack, things that I, I have on my pack where I can dry flies off. Again, it's that fly trap I talked about in a, a video recently. And those flies made it into that core box. And I was just in this constant state of assessing what was in there, what did belong, what didn't belong, flies that I felt like I needed to have in there. Like I had some like very traditional streamers that I'm like, well, and these need to be in there because these are really important flies. These are flies I need to be fishing. And I find I'm just not fishing them. So I took them out. They went back on the streamer box. They were still with me in case the situation necessitated it or the mood struck me, but they weren't in that core box. And then what happened? After a few months, that core box was all I took. I downsized the pack I was using. Or if I was going out just for a few hours, I would throw it in my pocket and then throw a couple of tools on a, on a, on a hip pack that I have. And that's all I needed. So interestingly enough, that, that was a very trout-centric example. But my confidence in this situation really arose from saltwater fly fishing. So I've lived in New England combined total of about 10 and a half years. And when I moved back to New England about three and a half years ago, I started doing more saltwater fly fishing. The reason being, my family absolutely loves the beach, and now my oldest kids are able to kind of navigate the, the sand and the, the surf on their own. So I've been going out more with them, and I always bring a rod and a handful of flies. And to kind of make this a reasonable thing to do on a family outing, I've forced myself to only bring with me one big wallet of flies. Don't bring a big fly box, just bring a wallet of flies. And what's in it? It's a handful of deceivers, a handful of clousers, a handful of poppers, and then a couple of their random flies. Because that's all I'm going to use if I'm fishing for maybe half an hour, maybe an hour and a half at tops, maybe not even fishing, just based on what we're doing as a family that day. But this was 
again, out of necessity because we got all the kids' stuff. We got the big Yeti cooler on wheels. We've got the little pop-up tent. We got everybody's toys and towels and food and all that sort of stuff. So I have my rod, and then I have a pack that has one fly box and my reel in it. So that way, when I get down to the water, I can drop all that. And I, if I get to use it, fantastic. If I don't get to use it, I didn't waste time, energy, and space hauling junk down to the water. And I have never. I'm I'm saying absolutely never been in a situation where I've felt like I've needed a different fly in the salt water. Now you're not exactly matching the hatch and that might sound like sacrilege to striper anglers up here, but I feel like I can get by with, you know, a half dozen different colors and sizes of clouser minnows under most situations and circumstances. And if I'm going out fishing for an hour or 2 hours, I'm not in it to, you know, really dial things in. I just want to get into a couple of fish and I find that with those flies I can do that. And I also don't want to be hauling a bunch of flies out into the surf. When it comes to the salt water, I'm probably a little more paranoid than most when it comes to taking care of my gear and rinsing things off. So the more stuff I take out there, the more stuff I'm going to have to rinse off and take care of at the end of the day or at the end of the week. So it really is pragmatic, but it also forces me to just fish. I've talked about this and much smarter and more experienced anglers than myself have talked about this, but a lot of fishing is about presentation and not so much pattern. And for saltwater fish, not to, you know, give them the short end of the stick or anything like that, I think for saltwater fish, a lot of it is the speed and the depth and the profile. And, you know, the, the colors, they do matter. But speed, depth, and profile, I think that's really much more important uh, than, than color under most situations, especially when you're fishing in the surf and things are all turbid and, and gnarly. But that was a one fly box situation that I just started from that place. I'd already had it in my mind with some of my trout fishing and my bass fishing. Very, very similar situation with bass fishing. Wet waiting, I would take one box because I didn't want to get all of my flies wet. I didn't want everything being soaked all the time. And I was doing a lot of really deep wet waiting for smallmouth in Virginia. And so I said, how can I fit everything I need in one box? And you only end up using two or three flies anyway. I mean, usually. So trying to get everything dialed in so that I was fishing more effectively and more efficiently was the name of the game. Now, going back to trout fishing, that's where things get a little bit more complicated. We all love to have box after box after box, lots and lots of flies. So what I would suggest if you wanted to kind of take this approach and give it a shot, and a lot of people are already doing this, so I'm not paving any new ground. But if this is something that you're new to, if you like to go up in the mountains for brook trout and you like to bring 400 flies with you, I would say this is a place and a situation where you really can put minimalism into practice. So it's harder. It does, it does feel weird only having maybe a dozen or two dozen flies in your pocket as you're going to fish if you've been used to having a vest or a sling pack or something full of flies, a backpack full of flies. I've seen guys do that. They've got a backpack in there up in the mountains, and they have a whole like cliff bugger barn full of, uh, of flies. And it's like, hey, that's up to you. I know people that backpack with all sorts of ridiculous things because they feel comfortable with them. They think they might use them, or they have just found a way that works works for them. And so they bring more than I would bring. But I know most people like cutting down on weight, cutting down on space, being able to move quicker and lighter. And so that's kind of what this is. That's the spirit of this conversation. I'm not forcing anybody to do it. But if somebody's interested, this is the information that I think is probably helpful. So the first thing to do, you know, is, is to say, do I have all my bases covered? And I feel like I can cover all of my dry fly bases with two flies with an asterisk. So two flies, 
a little asterisk next to that. And the two flies are the parachute atoms and the humpy. And the asterisk is a foam beetle. So we'll get to the foam beetle here in a second. But I feel like a parachute atoms gives me that small uh, profile, um, a more delicate presentation, and it's got to be parachute. I want to be able to see it. Additionally, in having that parachute, I feel like they ride hook down, uh, wing up uh, more readily than a traditional fly, um, especially when they've been dunked, submerged, and chewed on by fish for a while. And you know how it is when you're fishing for mountain brook trout or, or cutthroat if you're out west, having a fly get chewed on and then get, you know, run down through a, a waterfall and, you know, get hung up in the, the bushes. Those flies get mangled pretty quickly. So I like a parachute because it does maintain its proper orientation longer. And you don't even need wings. Really, you don't. I mean, like a hackle and a parachute. It's really all you need. So I like that. I like how it presents a very, uh, as I said before, modest profile on the water. So that's my smaller dry fly. It mimics really tiny stuff. It can mimic terrestrials. It can uh, mimic more delicate mayflies as uh, they're flitting about. And then the humpy. The humpy is the other side of the spectrum. The humpy that imitates your bigger stoneflies, imitates your caddisflies, but it's also an attractor pattern. So I like them in yellow. And yellow is good in, in my mind because it kind of strikes that balance between an attractor color and a color that you find in nature. There are plenty of bugs that are out there that, whether it be up close or even from a distance, they have a really stark yellow contrast with what's around them. Um, they might not be that yellow like, compared to the yellow thread that you're putting on a humpy, but they are going to be bright and they're going to stand out against their background. And I think the humpy does a good job of replicating that. And the yellow, uh, lime green is kind of my second favorite color when it comes to humpies, but I like a yellow humpy because it, it, it scratches that caddis itch, but it also is a fly that's going to float like a cork. I'll tie humpies with a little bit of foam, uh, a little bit of white or yellow foam in them, and that is a really, really good way to get by with a fly that you're not going to have to use a lot of floating on throughout the day. It's going to float like a cork. That can be your de facto strike indicator um, because if there's anything that's certain, it is that brook trout and trout up in the mountains will hit a strike indicator just as readily as they'll hit whatever is down below it. So if I am fishing a nymph, which I'll talk about here in a second, then I will use a humpy as my strike indicator more often than not, and certainly more than like a pulsa or, a, or an airlock or something like that. So parachute atoms, and I, you know, it depends on where you fish. Where I fish, I like to have them in 14s and 16s. And the same thing with humpy. With humpies, I might do 12s and 14s and 16s, um, but only a couple of each. Um, and those 14s, that's really kind of the sweet spot in my mind. That's that's right in that place where you're going to be able to match most of the sizes of most bugs. And you're probably going after attractant strikes less than matching the hat strikes. So 14s are a great middle-of-the-road size, parachute atoms and humpy. And then foam beetles, that's my asterisk, because of course it's not a true dry fly, but we're talking about fish hitting things up on the surface. And a foam beetle, as opposed to an ant, for example, a foam beetle just presents that big, chunky uh, profile. But more than that, it's something you can splat down. You can splat it like a grasshopper, but you can also splat it a little bit more gently like an ant. And a beetle, I mean, they don't look like anything, uh, but they fish as everything. I like foam beetles with a little bit of uh, color on them. So there's some tying material that I have that has sandwich, black, green, black. 
And there's also some that you can find online on eBay um, that has little dabs of red uh, paint on them, and uh, it stands out. You can see it. They are flies that even though there's big, chunky black thing, uh, if you don't have some color on it, it really blends into the water very, very quickly. Uh, so I like having a couple of beetles on hand just to serve as my terrestrial catch-all pattern. And again, you can really get them to, to make a good disturbance when if you, if you put a little bit more oomph into that presentation on, on, your, on your cast. So parachute atoms, humpy, and foam beetles. Now, uh, nymphs. Truth be told, I don't fish a lot of nymphs when I fish on small mountain streams. But there are times when they are incredibly productive, when fish are being spooky, when water's a little lower. And so there's two flies that I will go with. One is a beadhead hare's ear, and the other is a beadhead rubber-legged prince nymph. All right, so beadhead hare's ear, and the second is a beadhead rubber-legged prince nymph. That second one might throw you off a little bit, but let me circle back around and explain why I have those two patterns. A beadhead hare's ear, and I like a gold head. I don't know why, but that, again, that's just a confidence thing. I tie them in silver, and I look at them, and I think, eh. Yeah, it looks okay. I tie them in gold, and I, just, I really like that. Um, I think that gold is more muted than silver when it is drifting. It might shine, but it's not given that same sort of shine as a as a bright silver um, head. But it's also doing more than like a tungsten head, like a like a like a brushed or satin kind of color. So gold is my favorite. I love tying my hair's ears in gold. Now when I tie his hair's ears, I don't put a wing case on them. I just dub up the body, give them a little bit of tail, and I call it good. I, I do wrap them with, with, uh, with copper or gold wire too. But that is my subtle nymph. Now real quick, I mentioned beadhead on both. I will always tie and fish beadheaded nymphs on streams like this. I don't want to get too cute with my weight and my nymph rigs when I'm fishing small mountain streams because the depth is so variable from hole to hole, spot to spot, run to run, pool to pool, that I do not want to be messing with any sort of weight. So I rely more on the positioning of my cast and the type of my cast and the size of my fly to determine where that fly is going to go in the current and into the feeding lane for the fish. And that's another example of a way that you can limit and reduce the stuff that you bring on the water with you. Could you have a bunch of weighted and unweighted hare's ears? Of course. Could I have silver and gold and tungsten and maybe a bright orange neon beaded hare's ear? Yes, and I, I do fish those in different situations and circumstances. Could I bring a big you know, canister of weights and, and a bunch of different strike indicators? Yes, but I find ways around that, and I'm comfortable fishing that way, and I caught fish that way, and I have no problem fishing that way, so that's a way to cut down on the stuff that I have on me when I'm going into the woods. So the second pattern, a beadhead rubber-legged prince nymph. There's a lot going on there. But this is my attractor nymph. And I think this does a wonderful job, again, serving as an attractor nymph. I like the um, kind of the, the black and yellow striped legs for patterns like this. I think that they it doesn't matter what color legs you use if you're putting them on a um, like a hopper or something like that. I mean, it doesn't matter. Fish is just going to see silhouette. And probably not even really silhouette. Probably just the contact points where those legs touch the water. It's just going to make dimples uh, outside the body of that foam fly. But... For subsurface patterns, I like the modeled because it creates a little bit of depth and uh, something that is very rigid looking in your hand all of a sudden becomes very lifelike in the water. So I like the yellow and black striped um, legs on the nymphs. And the prince nymph is nice because it kind of has that longer body 
and it can be a stonefly nymph in a pinch. And that's a lot of the bugs that you're going to see in these small mountain streams are bigger stoneflies and bigger, maybe even helgramites if you're living in an area that has those. So you want something big and chunky if it's going to be imitating something. And I found that on small mountain streams that receive pressure, this is probably your best way into a bigger fish. Uh, they might be smart enough to not be chasing after your big streamers. So a tumbling uh, tumbling nymph or a tumbling streamer as opposed to a strip streamer is one of my favorite ways to get into those deep holes that probably a lot of people fish, uh, but uh, the, those fish might be wise, especially if they've been stung once or twice. So those are my two nymph patterns, beadhead hair's ear, gold bead, just, just dogmatic about that, and then the beadhead rubber-legged prints. Now, streamers. Streamers are essential. There's so much content I'm casting across. I've got a couple of podcasts, a couple of articles about fishing streamers on small streams. It's just, it's, it's a great thing to do, and it's not, you know, some giant articulated pattern that you need an eight weight for. It can just be something you have on your two weight or your four weight, but you can do it delicately, but it's a great way to stay in touch with your fly on water that has some really funky currents that has, you know, deep plunge pools and crazy eddies and things like that. So two flies, and I keep it simple. I have big woolly buggers tied traditionally. So these are maybe in sizes six and eight um, and conehead or beadhead and then small jig style woolly buggers. And these are smaller. These are like uh, 10 and 12. Now, why the difference? Well, when I fish those big woolly buggers, I try to strip those. Those are my, my probing deep hole flies. Those are my um, casting into the, the mouth of where my creek enters a bigger river. So those are my big, meaty flies where I'm actually fishing, trying to catch a bigger fish on, on a stream or in a small stream. And I need to have at least you know four or six of those in a couple of different dark colors to really go after some bigger fish. Or again, if, if you find yourself somewhere else, this is a great fly to have for bigger panfish or bass or things like that. So I like to have that in any box I'm fishing. But then those small jig style woolly buggers, I like those because those are those flies that I'm going to fish in a lot of different ways. I'm going to dead drift them. I'm going to strip them. I'm going to let them sit on the bottom and let that marabou just kind of undulate. I like those in lighter colors in your creams and your whites and your greens and your yellows and things like that. I could talk for a long time about technique, but again, go back. There's uh, fishing streamers on small streams, a couple of podcasts about that in the, the catalog. So there you go. If that's all the flies I have, maybe four of each of those patterns I mentioned, a couple sizes of each, I am totally fine. In fact, I would say maybe two of each pattern in each size. Uh, so you're talking one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different patterns two sizes of each. It's 14 times two. That's 28 flies. So just over two dozen flies. And I'd be totally comfortable if I got dropped off for a couple days in the mountains. Maybe if I was within walking range of my car, if I could refill that box, but that's enough. And I've gotten very comfortable with that. I understand it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's worth trying, especially if you do fish enough where you can give it a try. And if it's just not comfortable for you, or you realize, you know what, I'm wanting to turn to something I don't have on my person, and you're thinking that frequently, or it's just giving you anxiety, then don't do it. But if you do want to cut down on what you carry, and you do just want to fish more efficiently, and then tie more efficiently, I think I mentioned this in recently in another podcast, those are the flies that you should learn how to tie. It's a very diverse group of flies. But that's a group of flies that if like my examples are the kind of flies that you fish, those are the flies that I've forced myself to learn how to tie. Otherwise, I'd be buying them all the time. And nothing's that terribly difficult, especially if you cut corners, like not putting wings on your traditional dries like me. 
Any thoughts? Any thoughts on going down to one box? Anybody try it and hate it? Anybody try it and love it? Anybody get down to where they're only fishing one pattern all the time? Uh, Tenkara uh, not included because that's a whole different uh, ball of wax. Let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. If you have a fantastic story about being stranded because you took someone's dumb advice of only taking one fly box into the woods, I'd be happy to share that in a couple of weeks on my next Fly Fishing Accusations podcast. This week's articles on castingacross.com, Mondays is called New Spin on an Old Fin. So Mickey Fin, uh, awesome traditional pattern. I don't like using it on small streams, so or pressured streams for that matter. So I didn't mention putting it in this core fly box, and I don't carry it in my core fly box, but I have been fishing this little spin on this pattern a lot more lately. And uh, I sub out one material for another material. And if you want to see pictures and tying instructions and get the theory behind it, it's nothing, you know, crazy or revolutionary. It's not a new pattern. It's just a tiny little uh, alteration on a classic pattern. That article is called New Spin on an Old Fin. There's pictures of that pattern on the uh, website, of course, in the article, but then also on my Instagram account, at Casting Across. If you're not following, you should do that. Then Wednesdays is called Fly Fishing Books 9. So this is my ninth formal fly fishing book review article on the website. I've done a lot more here and there, mentioned them on the podcast, made a couple of videos, but this is three books, actually four books, excuse me, three books, and then one that I'm not saying explicitly on the website, but uh, I'll let you know that you can just Google the name of this short story and get it for free on the internet. But once you do that, you're probably going to want to pick it up so you can see some of the other short stories that uh, Mr. Hemingway wrote about the same character during the same subject matter. But that article, again, was called Fly Fishing Books 9. This week's recommendation on the podcast is more UV material from the good people at Loon. I absolutely love having a dozen or so different bottles of different UV materials on my tying desk so I can add a little something, put a little different spin on a fly, differentiate between one fly or another fly as I'm tying. And the UV clear fly finish that fluoresces, it captures that UV that is underwater. It's a great way to just give your fly a little extra something. It's not sparkle, it's kind of shimmer. I guess is the, 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 the better way to put it. It adds some shine to a fly, and it is just a great way to take a normal pattern and add what I like to call some passive fishing elements to it, where you don't have to do anything, and that fly is going to add a little bit of attraction to it. If I'm not putting a bead or a cone or something on the head of a fly, and I'm tying a streamer, so I tie up a bigger head, I love putting this on it because it just adds a little bit of shimmer, a little bit of sparkle, and a little bit of attraction to it. It's, and again, sparkle is not the right word. It's just it, it catches that light, and it uh, you, you can see it in the water, and it's a, it's a really cool thing. So this stuff runs for 18 bucks and you're going to get a ton of use out of it. You're going to find all sorts of different uses. You can put it on the bodies of your nymphs. It's not going to going to um, cure up super rigid, so you can put it on some flies and some materials that you want to still have a little bit of motion, a little bit of chew on them. But I, I like having it at my disposal, again, to add to some flies that I am going to fish if I'm going to fish slowly, um, if I'm going to fish them even totally dead, uh, <laughs> there's like some fly patterns that like fishing, letting them come to rest. These are going to shimmer just like marabou kind of moves in the water. This kind of shimmers in the water without you doing anything. So I'll put a link to the fluorescing UV clear fly finish on the page notes for this podcast on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. 
Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.